everybody, and welcome to Alien Talk Podcast. This is where we discuss all things about aliens and UFOs, and where we always push the limits of our understanding. We are your hosts, Joe Landry and Roy Olford, here again to bring you a fascinating show out across the world wide web as we continue exploring the manifold topics surrounding the idea of extraterrestrial beings, the mystery of UFO encounters, the studies of paranormal occurrences, and other very perplexing enigmas that make up this ever changing an ever-baffling world in which we live. We're very glad to have you here with us for yet another great discussion. Uh, this episode marks our 70th uh, as we come to the end of another season, bringing you new topics uh, every other week. And Laurie, this past season has been one that I would label as eclectic. Uh, we covered a range of uh, diverse subjects involving the, uh, the metaphysics of the mind and, and the consciousness. Uh, the clandestineness of and secrecy of societies that are as ancient as the Vatican and as modern as NASA. And we also examined the relevancy of extraterrestrial intelligence within the recent activities surrounding UAPs that were reported by the media. Yeah, you are correct on that, Joe. And uh, we finished the season with an episode that brings fulfillment um, brings to fulfillment the idea of the far-reaching government secrecy of UFO recovery, reverse engineering of alien technology and extraterrestrial interaction and intercommunication, all as seen on an international level. So today we are going to talk about the UFO program of Russia, which is a place that has a deep-rooted policy in government concealment and the control of information much of which goes back more than 100 years. So if you think all of the reports and accounts and cultural lore that exists in the United States about aliens and strange UFO phenomena are shadowy and mysterious, uh, the ones from Russia and the former Soviet Union are even more so shrouded in censorship. Right. Tight government control of the media and the dissemination of any official record has been a way of life for those who lived in Russia through the Soviet era. Uh, however, with the rise of Glasnost in the 1980s under Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, more transparency came about, and citizens of that country began to learn more about uh, what the Politburo had been hiding, especially from the time of Joseph Stalin when he was in power. And after the USSR dissolved in 1991, many of the KGB's classified records made their way into free circulation. Also, Western journalists were given considerably more access to Russian cities and rural villages. Uh, now, during the Cold War, if an American or really anyone from a NATO country was able to travel beyond the Iron Curtain, it was almost always under strict control to places like Moscow, Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg, uh, Kiev, and Minsk. Uh, these are major cities uh, of the Soviet Union. And of course, uh, such occasions were few and far between. And press members were not permitted to move around freely at all. They were instructed by uh, political officers to go uh, where, when to go and where to go. So any access to places that were more remote or off the beaten path, something like uh, industrial centers or military installations uh, that are scattered all across like Siberia, uh, that was virtually unheard of back then. Yeah, the... Uh... The Russians were good at controlling the impression that could make um, that they could make upon us, upon the West. That is, and and one of the ways they did was to uh, skirt foreign visitors uh, around, as to you know present an image of power and greatness. 
um, by moving them around throughout the the more important cities, particularly Moscow, uh, they were able to to make those visitors get a mental picture of how immense and formidable the Soviet Union was. And they were very good at creating propaganda, extremely good uh, at it. So for decades, any accounts of UFO contact from within that country were handled as highly, highly classified. And just like with the U.S. government, were downplayed and dismissed with an implementation of a communications policy known as Nachivo, which means nothing to it. And of course, Soviet citizens were very much discouraged from asking any questions about things to which you know, the communist officials of the country said there was nothing to be told. Now, like you said, that started to change after 1991 with the fall of the USSR, with more information becoming available about records and programs that are that at one time were so secret, they, they weren't even known by the CIA. Although you have to keep in mind that the CIA is pretty darn secretive too. So uh, they supposedly, uh, you know, not knowing about it may just be a part of their own plan of secrecy. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, by the mid-90s, uh, KGB documents were translated into other languages and made available to the outside world, and journalists were able to go to places in Russia that were at one time completely forbidden. Yeah, and some of those towns uh, in the region of the Ural Mountains were not even marked on any known maps. Um, you know, kind of like how Area 51 in Nevada isn't on any map. Uh, but in the early and mid-90s, Western journalists began going to Russia and other former Soviet states like Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan uh, to, to see close up some of these places where uh, there were recorded UFO incidents. Uh, one of them was George Knapp, who was a well-known investigative reporter uh, who was with the KLAS in Las Vegas for many years. Interestingly, he is the one who covered the story about the Las Vegas alien that we discussed in our previous episode. And he is also the one who initially interviewed Bob Lazar uh, when he went public about his work with alien reverse engineering. Uh, anyway, uh, based on a blog from mysterywire.com dated April 20th, 2021, uh, Knapp is said to have traveled to Russia in 1993 and 1996 when he met with Colonel Boris Sokolov, uh, who at the time was in charge of uh, a Russian Ministry of Defense study uh, that was launched into incidents, about 40 of them, where MiG uh, fighter jets had chased UFOs, and uh, some of them resulted, actually three of those uh, resulted in planes crashing, and in two of those uh, incidents, uh, two pilots had been killed. Um, from what Knapp learned, it seemed that the orders from the Kremlin were that UFOs were not to be fired upon, even though uh, there were times that ground-based radars were picking up hundreds of them flying around overpopulated areas. Uh, many times they were flying around all at once, uh, even over Moscow itself. And supposedly, this was and is a frequent occurrence. Uh, I mean, you, you get the impression that seeing a UFO is as common as seeing regular airplanes over there. And yet, um, it's always downplayed. Uh, the communist newspaper Pravda, uh, back during the Soviet era, would refer to them as non-topics. And I, I believe the, the Russian media refers to them in the same way even today. 
Well, NAB also got to travel to the region of Primorsky, uh, an, an industrial area with a, a lot of mining activity. And he was able to go to the town of uh, Dondogorsk. Uh, he was probably one of very few American journalists to go to this part, as it is the place of Russia's equivalent to the Roswell incident. It happened uh, January 29th, 1986, when a red sphere had passed over the town and went up above, um, um, I think it's pronounced uh, Izviskoyava or Izviskoyava Mountains, um, known better as Height 611, uh, where it ascended and then descended, crashing actually into the mountain. So supposedly 100 people had witnessed it, and George Knapp uh, got to talk to some of those people. Oddly enough, and I don't know if this is just coincidence, but that was only 12 hours after the explosion of the Space Shuttle Challenger. Um, yeah, I, I've often wondered, you know, how it could can be that the two events like that are on the opposite sides of the world, you know, could have occurred at pretty much the same time, you know, within the 12 hour time frame. Of course, the uh, Degna or the the Del Nagorsh story didn't get covered uh, at all in the United States, but the fact that it is said to have happened then is, you know, kind of weird. Yeah, definitely. It it does seem to be coincidental. I mean, since we know exactly what caused the Challenger explosion, and it has nothing to do with you know any external factors, but uh, yeah, it is it is a strange coincidence, right? Yeah, I mean, if there is a connection, I mean, I don't see it uh, other than a possibility of a cover-up, which does happen and which, you know, most governments are good at pulling off. Yeah, so there were there are more reports of UFO sightings from Russia than any other country, you know. Um, and this is according to Matthew Kirkheim with exonews.com, dated January 10th, 2019. And that makes sense uh, because Russia is huge. <laughs> It, it covers more land than any other country. I mean, it's just, it's just a vast, uh, you know, landscape, a, a vast territory, uh, and which is also means that more sky can be seen from this vast territory. Now, quite a bit of uh, these sightings are completely unverified, but many of them were, are found uh, and have been found in the past uh, from those secret KGB records that were dispersed. And the Donazagork incident reveals that after the crash, for about two straight years, there was an unusually high number of sightings over that very region at a specific spot. Um, also, it was found that right after that, more and more people started suffering from blood disorders like sepsis and thromboia. I'm sorry, not thromboia, uh, thrombophilia. Um, and that there were was a higher than normal level of radioactivity in the soil. And actually, I'm always fascinated with all of the weird things that uh, happen in Russia. Um you know, during the 80s and, and really throughout their history. And aside from all the stories about UFOs, you know, there's also the Chernobyl disaster that happened in the same year as the Donazagork incident, uh, which is about three months later. So I, I don't know if there's really a connection, but it, it just it's just strange. It's like when you think about all these weird things that happen, and it's kind of odd that they happen uh, when they do kind of in the same time frame, which was uh, 1986. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, there is a, another interesting story about a UFO that crashed in the uh, Shaitan uh, Mazar, which translates as Grave of the Devil. 
in the uh, Tinsan Mountains of uh, Kyrgyzstan near the Chinese border. Now, in an article by UFOinsight.com titled The Grave of the Devil Case, the UFO Crash and Retrieval in Russia, Marcus Loth uh, writes that this may be one of the best documented cases of a UFO sighting and a crash. And it's just one of several claims of a crashed vehicle of another world in Russia. Uh, so was this perhaps due to the imminent collapse of the communist regime behind the Iron Curtain? Did these uh, apparent visitors from another world have an interest in such matters? Uh, we have to wonder about these things as at times being you know, more than just coincidences. And as this story goes, it was around 5 o'clock p.m. on on August the 28th in 1991, when a huge unknown object around uh, 2,000 feet long and about 300 feet wide was flying up to about 21,000 feet and traveling at a speed of over 6,000 miles per hour over the Caspian Sea. You know, after tracking stations confirmed the object on their radars and, and that no other aircraft were in the area, it was at this point that a military alert was sounded. And moments later, four MiG-29 fighter jets were ordered to intercept. You know, after visual confirmation, they described the object as being metallic gray and elongated. Yeah, and it said that the object was eventually shot down after it did not respond to the orders from the pilots. And after the crash, uh, it was very difficult to locate the downed um now the uh, wreck, uh, even after a month after searching uh, by a, the initial team, uh, you have to remember the, the Russian landscape, like I said, is just huge. It's vast and it can be very uh, desolate with, with very few useful ground markers. So in a lot of ways, you know, with, with that desolate landscape, it is like looking for a, a needle in a haystack. Right. So authorities then dispatched a second search where the uh, Russian Air Force claimed to have finally located it in November 1991. But get this, the wreckage caused the helicopter that was trying to lift it to actually crash, killing all on board. I, I guess because it was so extraordinarily heavy, I guess. I, I don't know. Um, it seems odd that the that you know that would happen, but um, but then there was a third attempt. Uh, that was made in the summer of 1992, but they still couldn't move it. So no information was provided as to why. So it wasn't until six years later in 1998 that they were able to go back to the site to finish the retrieval effort. So, I mean, can someone say cover up? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you know, just as we here in the U.S. have, you know, been recently re getting a good bit of media coverage about unidentified things being shot down in our airspace. Uh, the same thing has been happening in Russia. According to Brenda Cole with Newsweek, which is dated uh, January 5th of this year, a mysterious object had been shot down in the region of Rostov uh, just a few days before that. And a local newspaper printed that story that a, a small-sized object in the shape of a ball had been discovered flying in the wind at an altitude of around one and a half miles and that the government said was unidentified. And this was similar to what was said to have been seen over here uh, later in February when the Pentagon claimed that there were these two unidentified objects that were shot down near Michigan after the incident with the Chinese spy balloon. Now, you know, some of you might be thinking that, you know, this could have been a drone or something similar since it was shot down during a time that there is a war with Ukraine going on. 
However, in a different article from the DailyBeast.com by Dan Ladden Hall, uh, dated around the same time as the Newsweek one you just uh, quoted from, the Russian Ministry of Defense referred to it as unidentified and flying over the rural village of Sultan Sali. Uh, it was described as a small object in the form of a ball. It was flying, flying freely in the wind at an alt- altitude of uh, approximately 8,000 feet. You know, due to this, they decided to destroy the object, but no further information was provided on what the object ended up being, nor was there any information on the actual dimensions of the small orb. But it seems that the location near Sultan Sally is not of uh, much strategic importance. If it was a Ukrainian drone, then it seemed to have been a wasted recon mission. Yeah, so this wasn't brought up too much at all at that time because uh, there was still a lot of censoring going on uh, in the Russian media. Still a lot of propaganda, even more so than here, if you can believe that. Um, You know, but some of the Russian politicians uh, were even quoted as saying that this thing was nothing more than a Ukrainian drone or possibly a a Ukrainian balloon. Uh, However, you know, the way the information was disseminated to the nation was done so uh kind of strangely it's like why not just say that um and make that the, the public declaration but they really didn't and they said it was really just done to reduce panic reduce public you know fear and put everyone at ease saying that the situation is under control with no further questions answered nor any further questions encouraged to be asked um kind of like how they've done over here in a lot of the press briefings with the white house and the pentagon uh then they just move on to other news you know like they do over here yeah, you're right about that. And, um, you know, uh, there's a story that's uh, carried by the New York Times. And honestly, I have never heard of this particular story before. So I was quite interested in it when you know I read it. And the column is dated uh, October 11th, 1989. And it's titled UFO Landing is Fact, Not Fantasy. The Russians insist. And this article alludes to the landing of a UFO in the city of Voronezh back on September 27th, 1989, which is about uh, 300 miles southeast of Moscow. It starts by claiming that it is not a joke, nor a hoax, nor a sign of mental instability, nor an attempt to drum up local tourism by drawing the curious. Now, this is according to the official state-controlled press bureau called TASS, T-A-S-S. They insist, even to this day, that it was an extraterrestrial visit to southern Russia. So it looks like they wanted the world to know that this was a serious thing and wanted that to made clear, uh, to be made clear like right away immediately. And it goes on to state that witnesses saw three-eyed creatures after a ship had touched down in a local park. Um, the quote, some are quoted, or there's a quote by a lieutenant. Uh, it says, "It was not an optical illusion." Uh, this was said by Lieutenant Sergei A. Um, uh, Matviev of the uh, Voynoy's uh, dis- District Police Station. Um, this was in a telephone interview that he saw the landing. Uh, he even, uh, even though he claims to have not seen the alien creatures, he did see the object, which he referred to as a spaceship. And he said, It was certainly a body flying in the sky, moving noiselessly at a very high speed and very low altitude. 
anything is possible, to be honest. I thought I must be really tired, is, uh, is what he uh, said. But he continued with, I rubbed my eyes and it didn't go away. So then I figured uh, in this day and age, anything is possible. So uh, this was a pretty candid testimony for a Soviet cop, wouldn't you say? Yeah, really. Um, well, you know, uh, Russia has had a long history of UAP sightings and bizarre phenomena uh, taking place uh, even before the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, you know, which resulted in the Tsar being overthrown and the Romanovs being executed. Uh, there have been stories of incredible things being seen in the skies. Uh, some were described as flying saucers, some as bright, colorful orbs, uh, some as angelic looking creatures. Now, during the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, the philosophy of science that was widely popular and widely embraced by prominent scholars at the time uh, was one that was um, it was very pervasive. Uh, it was something that was called cosmism. And cosmism um, combines the study of human existence, uh, ethics, and evolution with uh, almost as a religious ideal. Um, and it, the religious ideal that it uh, permeates is that travel into space is like a destiny of mankind uh, as ordained by God. Uh, so it was a rather peculiar belief system that seemed to take the elements of Christianity, Buddhism, theosophy, and shamanism and put them all into one ontological framework of science uh, being needed to fulfill the duty within the human mind to discover the way for people to explore outer space. Uh, it was something along the lines of a New Age cult. It, it sounded kind of, kind of bizarre. Um, and it was headed by many progressive cosmologists like Konstantin Tiskovsky and Nikolai Fyodorov and Vladimir Verdansky, who thought of space travel as both a scientific and religious idea, and that also included the belief in extraterrestrial life being present throughout the universe. And you know, while cosmism was suppressed under Lenin and Stalin, it was still held on to by some um, very influential scholars within the Soviet Academy of Science throughout the 20th century. And it also remained in, in so far that it, it was formed part of what was the saint, um, the, the state sanctioned policy of putting rockets and cosmonauts into space. Yeah, well, like you said, you know, there were many stories of sightings happening in Russia long before it was the Soviet Union. Uh, during the time of the Russian Empire under Peter the Great, there were balls of fire seen all across the country. Uh, under the reign of the Tsar Nicholas II in the early 1900s, there were sightings of shiny metallic ovals gliding over the uh, city of St. Petersburg. And, of course, this was before the time of airplanes. Um, and, and then we have one that goes back to 1663 in the uh, Vologda region, and um, it is known as uh, the Robo Zero event. Um, this comes from a, a letter that is signed by a laborer named Ivan Rosivsky, where he writes that from out of the clear blue sky, a large flaming sphere descended over the lake and shot two fiery beams and blue smoke in the direction it was moving. And he also wrote that it made a loud noise that was heard by a multitude of people who were in attendance at a nearby church for mass. So, here we have an account from an autograph source that relates to an eyewitness testimony. That's something, you know, uh, we don't have with you know, most other stories from antiquity. Yeah, right. And, 
And this was said to have occurred on August 15th, 1663, which is the feast day of the Assumption of the Virgin Mary. So Rozewski's letter made its way to the priest, who in turn related to the Bishop of Belarusia, um, where the whole occurrence was looked at as a possible sign from God. Uh, obviously, the letter says that all of the parishioners who witnessed this were terrified and, and then prayed to Mary for protection. Uh, supposedly, the fiery orb appeared two or three to- other times on, on that very same day. Now, the Orthodox Church did not confirm this event as a miracle, but regardless, the account is preserved as a historical record. And some ufologists have speculated on the possibility of this being an alien craft that appeared in a way that is similar to the 1566 aerial phenomena mentioned in a pamphlet from Basel, Switzerland. Now, in that instance, a mass of shears, some black and some red, were seen in the sky over Basel for in the months of uh, late July and early August. So this Roba Zero incident is uh, not that unique, but it is part of a pattern, a pattern of strange apparitions being reported from, you know, back in the medieval and Renaissance periods. It's amazing how uh, incidents like this are described in many ancient and and religious texts where authors try their best to interpret these uh, types of aberrations. And the best way to explain it, of course, is something spiritual. (laughs) Now, uh, according to Tass, uh, three kids from a local school witnessed um, the uh, UFO around 6.30 p.m. where they saw a pink shining uh, in this, like a, that pink uh, thing shining in the, in the sky and then spotted a ball of deep red color. Uh, the crowd gathered and, you know, they could clearly see a hatch opening in the, in the lower part of the ball and a humanoid in the opening. Um, the three-eyed creature, uh, about nine feet tall, dressed in uh, silvery overalls and bronze boots, and he had a disc on its on its uh, chest. Um, he disappeared and then landed and came out for a promenade with a companion and a robot. So the aliens appeared to communicate with one another, and they created what looked like a shining triangle and activated the uh, the robot. So terrified. A boy began to scream with uh, with a stare uh, of the aliens, uh, but with a stare of the aliens' shining eyes, uh, he was silenced and he became paralyzed. Now this sounds, you know, like what occurred in uh, Las Vegas, where you know the young man named uh, Angel had called to report the uh, eight to ten feet tall alien in his yard, and that he felt paralyzed and was silent after looking into the eyes of that creature. But anyway, the the three beings uh, in this incident had uh, you know dis- disappeared, and then returned a short time later with one of them having what looked like a gun that was about two feet long, and he had pointed it at the sixteen year old boy, and the boy disappeared, but the boy then reappeared after the alien went back onto the ship. I mean, this is something you know out of a science fiction movie like uh, the day the Earth stood still. Yeah, right. So this is related to the Verandas uh, incident. And uh, Tass then said that the regional health department director uh, claimed that there was widespread fear in the city, uh, but that none of the witnesses requested any medical attention. And he did say that they were planning to examine these children. And the authorities of Verandas um, treated this as a serious phenomena, and that uh, if these aliens were to return, the military would need to be requested. And after dozens of witnesses were interviewed by experts, 
who had examined the evidence and spoke to the children. Uh, there were about three sightings of the UFO between September 23rd and uh, 29th is what they they come to realize. And the children were also requested to draw what they had seen and were um, separated from one another while doing so, so they couldn't you know influence one another as to the drawings. And they all drew a similar uh, picture. It was a banana-shaped object that was uh, seen in the sky in the shape of a letter X. Um, this, of course, sounds very much like the 1561 account that was given about what seems to have been an air battle uh, over Nuremberg, Germany. And there's a woodcut uh, painting that shows X or you know, cross-shaped objects in the sky above the town. So again, we have this anachronism of something taking place in medieval times that looks like a aerial battle, which in medieval times shouldn't have happened. Right. Yeah, we talked about that in great length in the uh, UFOs and ancient art episode. Uh, so if you guys want to go back and take a listen to that, I think you'll find it pretty quite interesting if you haven't done so already. Um, but also, um, according to UFO Insight, the same article claims that after this, uh, after this, there was yet another UFO crash that that summer on August the 10th at around 11 o'clock a.m., uh, an object was spotted on military radar near the city of uh, Proladini. Um, and yeah, if you guys want to look this, I'm going off of the article here, but that that name is pronounced or it's uh, written out as P R O H L A D N Y I. <laughs> but the uh, but MIGs were scram scrambled and uh, service to air missiles were put on alert. And one of these missiles may have hit the object and caused it to crash into the Caucasus. Uh, mountains. The craft was located and appeared to be a uh, disc shape, you know, being approximately, uh, I believe, was 20 feet wide and around 10 feet in, in height. Um, the object was taken to Mazdak, the air base near the Armenian border, where the research team then entered the craft through a door that was somewhat open, and inside they discovered two dead alien beings and a third one that died later. And the beings were around three feet tall with whitish gray skin that appeared to be like an outer cover. And when they examined more closely the skin layer underneath that, they found it to be of a bluish green color that appeared to have a reptilian texture. And these particular uh, ETs were said to have large, black, round eyes and large, bald heads and three webbed fingers. And these descriptions are similar to many other descriptions of aliens, like those of the typical gray alien. But is the detail of the, rip, the reptile-like skin underneath uh, the outer layer that of a reptilian? That could be. Now, you know, um, Russian cosmonauts have, had, uh, have long been known to make reports about seeing strange uh, unidentified objects while up in orbit, and just like American astronauts, but you know even more so with them. And they make statements about what it was that they observed while in space. And when they give these statements, they are given strict uh, orders from their superiors to not talk about it. And if they ever go public, they are most surely to be censured for it, and sometimes even worse. Exactly. And to that point, in uh, April 1979, cosmonaut Viktor Afanasyev. Uh, lifted off from the spaceport in uh, uh, Kazakhstan to uh, to dock with the Soviet Salyut 6 space station. Um, but while en route, something strange happened. Um, Afanasyev saw an unidentified object 
turned toward his craft and began tailing it through space. Uh, he later told reporters, and this is his quote, it followed us half during half of our orbit. We observed it on the light side, and when we entered the shadow side, it disappeared completely. It was an engineering structure made from some type of metal, approximately 40 meters long with inner hulls. The object was narrow, hair and wider hair, and inside there were openings. Some places had projections like small wings. The object stayed very close to us. We photographed it, and it was shown to be 23 to 28 meters away. Um, in addition to photographing the UFO, um, Afanasiev continually reported back to his mission control about the craft size, its shape, and the position. And when the cosmonaut returned to Earth, he was debriefed and told never to reveal what he knew and had his cameras and film confiscated. So all the evidence of the encounter had been erased, or at least it was made It was made for us to believe it was erased. Yeah, and the Soviets have had other you know, encounters in space that were you know, even more bizarre and more ethereal, uh, almost like mystical or spiritual. You know, take the one that was in July 1984 when cosmonauts Vladimir Solovyov and Leninoid uh, Kizim and four others on board Solyot 7 saw these angelic beings when they looked out their windows. And they were not objects like spacecraft, but were said to be bodies of light that had wings and, and humanoid faces. And they were said to just be swimming around out in space. And they were said to be large, too, like uh, the size of Boeing 737s. Uh, so um, hard to say what they were, um, but it was dismissed by scientists at Roscosmos, uh, which is the Soviet space agency, uh, as being more or less hallucinations related to the stress and fatigue of space travel. But it seems that the sight of you know, strange things was and still is pretty common among astronauts and cosmonauts. And as far back as 1961, the Russians were reporting UFO encounters during their orbital missions. But there was just so much secrecy and cover-up with them that very little, if anything, was ever heard about it. I mean, heck, supposedly some cosmonauts actually died up in space, and, and that information about it was completely withheld from any media and was never mentioned to the West. A prop that would cloak this whole thing as a non-topic. And uh, that's kind of disturbing about how information about certain things can just seem to vanish away. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and, and Joe, I, I wonder if what these cosmonauts seen when he looked out the window, these angelic beings flying around in space, did they see Princess Leia floating around from episode eight? <laughs> uh, I don't think she was as big as a 737. <laughs> oh, that would be a pretty true. awful sight to see a, a large Princess Leia flying around in space. Um, yeah. But, yeah, but yeah, I just, I hated that. I thought that was stupid. But anyway, <laughs> but uh, isn't it annoying, though, when, you know, you read about occurrences like this and how scientists seem to come up with an answer for it, even though they were never there to witness it? like. You know, all these cosmonauts witnessed the same thing and described it as such. And, you know, there is another good story in an article by globalnews.ca of uh, Ivan Wagner, a Russian cosmonaut who was actually recently orbiting the 
Earth aboard the International Space Station, the ISS. He claims to have captured footage of uh, potential UFOs while recording you know, video of the Southern Lights. And this was just back in 2020. The uh, the video shows the light of an uh, um, aurora passing over Antarctica and Australia, but there's something else. You can see the curvature of the Earth along with greenish-orange aurora uh, and some stars behind it. But then at around the 9 to 12 seconds in to the footage, there are five objects flying parallel about the same distance away. Wagner then asked in a tweet, you know, what do you think those are? Meteors, satellites, or, hey, big question mark. Yeah, it looks like it could be, you know, five separate objects or five lights on one larger object. Um, you don't see for very long, but there is definitely something that enters into the field of view. I mean, I, I guess it's anyone's guess as to what it could be, you know, space debris, Starlink satellite, uh, the Black Knight satellite. Um, what I can never understand is, is the orders given to not discuss things about what is seen. And in a nation that's you know, under totalitarian rule, like in the Soviet Union or like, like in China and, and North Korea. And I can see why. And that's because the government is controlling the narrative for uh, political reasons and uh, as such restricts the free exchange of information, which is a threat to a regime that is trying to regulate what is known by the people. Uh, so the answer as to why cosmonauts are told not to talk about what they've seen is power, plain and simple. But that should be less prevalent in a de democratic society like ours, where, you know, a free exchange of ideas is always encouraged. At least that is the principle behind it, even if it's not always that way, as it seems, um, you know, in a day to day living. And, and while here in the U.S., we do have a restriction on accessing certain information uh, that is classified, we still have the ability to openly talk about things, even without having access to the official records that may prove something and say out loud and we can also say out loud what we we may have seen if we see something uh in the sky we can we can say we saw something in the sky if we had an encounter with a, a being whether it's spiritual or an alien we can say that and I, I think in russia the need for such control is is greater you know politically speaking therefore if the accounts of these encounters um are accurate uh then they're more of a threat to the authority of the powers that be over there you know well, yeah, the uh, the stories of Russian sightings are numerous. I mean, too numerous to recount in one place at one time. And just in America, the whole topic is cloaked in government secrecy. And we we hope that someday all of the countries of the world will eventually disclose everything that they all know. Yeah, there's, there's to hoping. Yeah, I mean, yeah, perhaps a, maybe it's just a matter of time, or, or you know, perhaps uh, I don't know. They're all waiting for something big to happen. Uh, very hard to say. Uh, what exactly, when that'll happen, if it'll happen. Um, but uh, as it is now, uh, you know, the, the Russian government is very, very uh, controlled about what they say about UFOs. Uh, our government is too, uh, but it seems like in other countries like uh, Russia and China as, as well, uh, very tight lid on this kind of stuff. But anyway, that will do it for today. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. And we hope it got you thinking about a lot of this stuff. Yeah, and the uh, and the next episode will be number seven seventy one as we go into season eight. So, for that, we'll start off with a show dedicated solely to some of the UFO sightings reported by police officers uh, throughout the decades, including yours truly here. <laughs> uh, 
but there really are some interesting accounts given by uh, officers who who were uh, out on patrol and, and had come across a close encounter of some sort. Some um, some really good stories and the stories of cops that you know witnessing aliens and other strange. Uh, phenomena are a huge part of the uh, folklore that fall under the study of ufology. So, um, but we actually mentioned one of them today with uh, that officer from uh, Rowanez in Russia. So, you know, join us for that episode in two weeks as we discuss cups and saucers. Get it? You know, just like cups and saucers. <laughs> yes, Corey, we get it. We we definitely get it. <laughs> um, well, it was a pleasure discussing this topic today, and we truly hope you enjoyed it. Uh, don't forget to spread the word about the, the, this podcast to your family, friends, and coworkers. Uh, have a safe and enjoyable uh, next couple of weeks, and stay curious, everyone. <laughs>